Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books in Psychology. I'm Vita Hamafar, your host. Today, we'll be speaking with Raylan Maloney about her new book, Waking Up, A Parent's Guide to Mindful Awareness and Connection. Dr. Maloney is the director of A Mindful Place in Littleton, Colorado, where she practices as a licensed counseling psychologist. As an author, educator, and counselor, Dr. Maloney provides guidance to parents and children struggling with a variety of relationship challenges. Now, here's the interview. Today, we're talking to Dr. Raylan Maloney, director of A Mindful Place in Littleton, Colorado, where she practices as a licensed counseling psychologist and is the author of Waking Up, A Parent's Guide to Mindful Awareness and Connection. Before we begin the interview, Raylan, why don't you tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and how you became interested in mindfulness? Sure. Um, I am a... um, mother of two little girls, and as you just mentioned, I work in a private practice and see children and parents pretty much all week trying to help them manage um, some, you know, ups and downs of of parent-child relationships. I became um, really interested in mindfulness when I was in graduate school, and I um, was pregnant with my first child and um, trying to really integrate the concepts I was learning around psychology with trying to be a parent who was available and present to um, a newborn baby. Mm-hmm. So what led you to write Waking Up? You know, I um, went throughout graduate school um, doing a little bit of studying in the area of mindfulness, wrote my dissertation on uh, actually a mindful parenting program that I had found. Um, and then began my private practice and was integrating some of the principles that I had learned throughout my graduate training. And as I was sitting with children and with parents, they were teaching me so much about what the trials and tribulations of day-to-day interactions were within parent-child relationships. So I began to take some notes and and jot down um, a number of of things that um, really were key points that children were trying to communicate to their parents through their behaviors, sometimes through their words, um, that parents just weren't really getting. They, they, they didn't seem to sink in. And so um, really what I did was I sat down uh, with the information that I had been gathering over the course of years working with parents and kids and pulled it together into waking up as a resource to really be a voice um a voice of a lot of the kids that I was working with uh, to try to say, you know, parents, these are the things that your child really needs and wants in order to grow and develop into a solid, confident, compassionate person. Okay. Now, in your book, in the first few pages, actually, you explicitly state that the mindful way isn't intended to replace existing beliefs about parenting. Can you explain what you mean to our audience? Sure. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, as parents, we come into parenting with 
a whole set of beliefs and expectations about ourselves um, and also just experiences that we've had in our own relationships with our own child about what it means to be a parent, what's important, uh, what are the key things that you need to focus on with your children. And so the intent of that really is to say you are you get to come into parenting with all of those. Learning about mindfulness and learning about becoming a more present parent really is intended to deepen everything you are already doing as a parent as opposed to replace it um, and, and to ha- have you start from scratch. Um, okay. Yeah, the reason I ask is that you can see how somebody would think you're trying to replace their existing belief system. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Now, also in the first few pages of your book, you ask the reader to take a moment and write down what they learned from their own parents about parenting, Mm -hmm. identifying some similarities and differences, as well as what they think their role or purpose is in parenting. Right. And I was wondering if you could tell the audience why you think this is important. Yeah, I think there's a key element in um, being able to allow yourself to reflect on what are these pre-existing beliefs and ideas, and even self-expectations that you're carrying into the moments with your child. And so this exercise really is an opportunity for for parents to reflect and and to consciously kind of put into words and articulate, what do I believe? Why am I doing this? Why am I parenting the way that I, I am? And where does it come from? Okay, that makes sense. You know, one of the many wonderful quotes that stuck out of the book um, was the following. I'm just going to read it to you. You say, some parents are more willing than others to acknowledge when they lose their footing and stumble imperfectly through moments with their children. Why do you think that is? You know, one of the things that so many children have taught me in the work that I do with them is that um, it seems as if some parents have a great difficulty hearing about any flaws or imperfections that they may have as a parent. And no matter how hard a child tries to express this, either, again, through their behavior or through words, parents have a very hard time hearing it. And and I believe it really comes down to wanting to preserve an image of um, the the good parent. We all want to be good parents. My belief is that a big part of being a good parent is is to be able to acknowledge but I'm not perfect. I do the best I can on a daily basis, on a moment-to-moment basis, but I'm, I'm very much imperfect, just as my child will be. Mm-hmm. Okay. Now, throughout the book, there are questions that you pose to your reader that are meant to elicit self-reflection that you call notes to myself. And in the first chapter, in one of those notes, you write, when I think about parenting, what I struggle with the most is blank, and what I do really well is blank. So based on your experience as a practicing psychologist, what do you think parents struggle with the most, and why do you think that is? You know, I believe that parents struggle primarily with with two key issues. One is distraction, and this is what our kids struggle with, too. We live in a culture and we live in a world that invites distraction and distractibility, and so very often we're pulled in so many different directions, and when we're in the presence of our child, 
then we're not actually with them and they don't feel seen and they don't feel heard. So I think distractibility is one key area that as parents we really struggle with. Um, the other one I believe is what I would maybe classify as emotional reactivity, um, that we tend to interact with our child in a reactive way. And, and I think that really comes from not being aware of or awakened to what's going on internally for us. So we're just simply responding to something outside of us, um, something our child said, something our child did, um, some way that they're behaving that has created or triggered an emotional response in us. And um, it comes out directly in the parent-child relationship. I think you just set up my next question beautifully because you also write in one of these notes to myself, as a parent, the one thing that can put me in a bad mood instantly is blank, and the one thing that can improve my mood instantly is blank. So how do you think a question like this can be helpful to a parent struggling with their child for one reason or another? The, the purpose of that kind of question is really to help a parent become aware. It's about becoming enlightened and willing to observe oneself um, so that you know when your energy changes. So I think in that question, for example, the, the question surrounds mood. So when the energy of your mood changes, it's important to be aware of that so that you can take control of it. You can be the one to manage it instead of having it come out directly at your child um, have it come out in words that you possibly may at some point regret having used um, and not have your child be the one responsible for dealing with a particular mood or um, stressor that might be going on in your life. Rather, mm -hmm. you're the one that takes care of that. Right. You also write, most of the time when I'm angry with my child, I show it by playing and I show happiness with my child when I do X, Y, or Z. And, you know, these, these questions, they seem so simple, and yet I wonder how many parents ask themselves this on a regular basis, if at all. What do you make of that? Yeah, I think as parents, we don't do a lot of self-reflection. We really are just going. You know, we're moving throughout our day. We're trying to get everything accomplished that we need to accomplish. And we don't pay attention we're, or we don't pause enough or slow down enough to really mm -hmm. take an, an objective look at what does my face look like right now as I'm standing in front of my child, as I'm talking with my child? What kind of mood am I communicating to them through the way that my you know tone sounds with them? So really a lot about mindfulness and mindful parenting is about becoming an objective observer of yourself so that you know exactly what's coming across to your child. Because until you know what's coming across, you can't actually create a shift. So throughout your book, you discuss several senses of self, body, mental, feeling, action, and spirit. I was wondering if you could go through each of these definitions for the audience and explain how they might interfere with being the best parent one can be. Sure. Vita, I'm sorry, you're cutting out. Oh, okay. So let me, let me try that one more time. Okay. Throughout your book, you discuss several senses of self, body, mental, feeling, action, and spirit. I was wondering if you could go through each definition for the audience 
and also explain how that might interfere with being the best parent one can be. Uh, absolutely. So the body self is really just our physical body, right? The sensations that we feel, the physical um, aches and pains, um, physically how we appear to ourselves and to our child, and really basic physical needs like hunger and thirst. Um, it's important to know about what we're bringing in physically to every interaction with our child because these can often interfere um, or interact with the way that, that we come across to our child. So one example might be if we are carrying a lot of tension or stress or chronic pain in our body, we will be carrying that into our interactions with our child through our tone of voice, um, through some of the language that we may use. Um, it may even be through our inability to really um, connect with our child in the moment because we're so focused on what our, our physical body is feeling like. Our child may hear, um, our child may believe or misunderstand that we're not able to listen to them or unwilling to listen to them when really what we have going on is that there's some physical ailment. So being able to be conscious of that and then either set it aside while we're present to our child or even acknowledge it to our child um, can really help the parent-child relationship. So the child's not making misinterpretations about why a parent isn't listening, um, why a parent seems distracted. The mind self really is the mental, cognitive, thoughts, our beliefs, our opinions, um, the tapes that we have running in our heads um, that sometimes may be negative about ourselves or even about our, our lives or about our child. Some people refer to this as the inner, our inner critic um, perceptions of, of how we view ourselves. Um, and our cognitive coping styles, how we manage conflict in relationships would be some examples of the mind self. Um, becoming aware of how your mind operates, what kind of thoughts flow through your mind, and especially what that inner critic tape might be um, playing throughout the day is extremely important because those also can become part of the parent-child dialogue and parent-child interactions. The key really to understanding each of these senses of self is so that as you become aware of it, you want to do and whether or not you want it to become a part of the interaction with your child. You can also identify what your strengths and weaknesses are or strengths and limitations as a parent. So, for example, if your coping style um, in conflict tends to be that you retreat, it's important that you know that even in the parent-child relationship, when conflict arises with your child, what you may do is retreat, um, and your child may not understand what you're doing. So you being aware of that can really help facilitate um, a more positive interaction with your child. You might be able to say something to the child like, you know, when there's a lot of conflict going around, I often have to back away from it for a few minutes, but I'll be back but that the child can be reassured. Um, the feeling self is really our emotions, our emotional self, our, our fluctuating moods, the way that we express emotion. And it's key to understand the, this layer or this level of self because oftentimes our children are 
what are what what they see in us in terms of how we express feelings. So one example I can give is um, oftentimes parents will come in and bring their child asking me to help them with um, helping their child become less of a yeller or to manage their anger better. And one of the first places we begin is to really assess how the parents first manage their anger. Um, because until parents are able to manage their own angry reactions toward the child or in the presence of the child, the child is not necessarily going to be able to learn new new methods or new ways of expressing anger that are a little more healthy. Um, and then there's the behavioral self, which really is just our direct interactions, um, things that we actually will will do. Will, will perform things that we decide not to perform. Um, and I include nonverbal messages that we send to our child through um, our voice, our facial expressions, the way that we stand while we're talking to them, and even the, the proximity that we tend to be, um, or the distance, I guess is another way to say that, the distance we tend to, to be um, with our child when we're having a dialogue with them. It's important to have some discernment and awareness of how the child sees those sees you, how the child um, or what the child is exposed to in terms of action um, on your part as a parent. And so one example of this might be um, if a parent, while they're disciplining their child, is constantly hovering over them with an angry look on their face, um, the parent would want to know that that is how they are appearing to the child so that they can alter their appearance um, and maybe have a much more impactful interaction with the child. Um, because oftentimes what a child will do is they'll revert to pointing out that the parent is just angry. And so the conversation becomes about the parent's anger instead of about actually the child's behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there's the spirit self or, or um, what I refer to as the spirit self, which really is kind of our, our, um, our soulful uh, expectations of and, and moral expectations of both ourselves and our children that we tend to carry into the parent-child relationship as well. Um, and being aware of those and how, they, um, how they're communicated to our child through day-to-day interactions. Um, one example that always comes up in my practice when I'm talking with parents and child that's related to the spirit self is this whole concept of generosity and compassion And um, so I encourage parents to really look at kind of the spiritual aspect of themselves, too, to to determine what at their own core are they wanting to see in their child? And then how are they trying to teach that through their own their own behavior, through their own words, through their own um, capacity to manage their um, their feeling self? Okay, thank you. I think the listeners will find that helpful. Now, you also encourage the reader to pass on value and not debris. What do you mean by that? And what are some examples of debris that you think our listeners may be able to identify with? Sure. Um, You know, 
it's my belief, and I see this occurring consistently in, in my practice and even in my own interactions with my children, that every single interaction is um, an opportunity to leave an imprint on our child's sense of who they are. Um, every single interaction, we imprint something. And so what I really try to promote and help parents become conscious of is that when they're interacting, that they more often are imprinting and leaving something of value rather than something that I refer to as debris. So the difference between value and debris really is um, words and actions and interactions that are of value leave our child feeling as if they are cared about, worthy of being respected, and loved. Okay, thank you. Mm -hmm. Interactions that carry debris oftentimes feel as if they they leave the child feeling as if they are unimportant, cut down, um, unloved, or unworthy of receiving love. So a couple of examples might be carrying value could be um, setting a firm limit with your child and doing that in a very compassionate way versus setting a limit with your child and doing that in a way that you carry in all of your stress and anxiety and overwhelm of the day. So in one of those situations, you provide a, a valuable moment with your child where they understand that setting a limit is important and that you care about them enough to set the limit. Um, and then the other one, they almost can almost miss the message of the limit because they get so caught up in the anger or the anxiety that's being communicated from the parent. Okay, got it. Thank you. What I'm going to do next is read an excerpt from your book um, on page 71, and the mother um, writes that she received a letter from her son, and you know what? We just just uh, saw an internet connection problem, so let me see if this is working still. Okay. I'm still recording. Yeah, I'm still recording. So let me just reintroduce that, um, and hopefully we've got everything. What I'm going to do now is read an excerpt from your book on page 71, where a mother um, is writing about a letter that she got from her son, because I think it beautifully exemplifies a lot of things that parents are struggling with today. And she writes, that her son gave her a letter and it said, Dear Mom, you are my best mom. You do all of the things we need to get done. You drive fast sometimes in the car so that we can get the stuff we need and get it all done. We are always in the car together. I like driving in the car with you sometimes. Sometimes I'm tired. You do a lot and we get a lot done. You really are my best mom. Happy Mother's Day. <laughs> Now, you can imagine that some parents might think that they have to be less busy in order to be more mindful. So how would you respond if a parent said this to you? I think that that is very frequently assumed by parents. 
you know, they think mindfulness is equated to um, doing less. And it really isn't at all. Um, I think it's unrealistic to think that we can do less as parents. Our, our world is one that is busy. So one of the key features of, of being able to become and really practice this, this daily um, interactions of mindfulness and presence with your child is to allow yourself to continue with the general flow of what your, your day is, to know that you're going to be in the car for periods of time with your child, but to be able to be fully present to your child so that when we're in the car together, it still feels very connected. I still know, mom or dad, that you you think about me, you care about me, you are listening to what I have to say. Um, we can create daily, small daily interactions all, all throughout the day, really, um, with our child that will allow them to feel as if we are present. Sometimes it's as simple as looking them in the eye when we're talking with them. We can still be doing the dishes. We can still be folding laundry. We can still be um, trying to clean up the house. Um, we can still be um, <coughs> playing, uh, taking care of the things that we need to take care of in our own life, paying bills, uh, answering emails, um, but small, simple little things to try to help your child feel like you're present, even if it's just for a moment, listening to what they're saying and that you see them really is what makes all the difference in the world to our kids. Okay. There's another concept that you refer to several times in your book called the game of catch. Can you tell the readers what you mean by this? Sure. This this really is just a, a fun, playful way to describe parent-child interaction. So what occurs in the parent-child relationship, and truly in any relationship, this is fitting, is that there is energy that moves back and forth between the parent and the child. So, for example, the parent asks the child to do to do a chore. The child responds with some with something, either confirms that they'll do it um, or uh, shrugs, um, and then the parent responds to that response, and it goes back and forth. So, so the game of catch really is a way to help parents understand if we can slow down the interactions a bit, we begin to become much more aware of what's getting tossed back and forth through each and every one of those moments. Now, clearly, we're not going to be able to slow down every interaction to the point where it becomes really meaningful and and, um, uh, uh, we become completely aware of it. But as you slow it down, Parents and children can become to see, can come to see themes that are constantly occurring in their game of catch, and those are then the things that we tend to work with um, in in the office around trying to improve so that they have a a smoothly flowing game of catch. Now you discuss nonverbal communication a lot in your book, um, and you've mentioned it a few times in some of your other answers. You write that as adults, our words are overshadowed often by the very stronger nonverbal messages that we give to our children. And you also write that instead of taking in the verbal message, 
children will often filter in their own version of things based on how it feels to be with us in that moment. Um, one of the things that you do is you suggest to ask your child about your last argument because their version of what happened is likely very different than yours as a parent. Why do you think this matters? Yeah, this is really um, pretty key to creating some significant shifts in the parent-child relationship. Until we understand as parents how our child feels, what I call what, what our child's felt perception is during the game of catch, um, it's going to be extremely difficult for us to believe that we need to, number one, alter our own behavior, um, or number two, understand that we contribute oftentimes to the ways that our child is um, speaking and behaving. So um, the, the nonverbal communication and becoming, again, an objective observer of what your child may see is really key in, be, in being able to create a shift that will make a difference in the parent-child relationship. What we often do, I think in general in relationships, is we tend to point the finger instead of pointing the thumb at ourselves. We point the finger at the other person regarding what they're not doing well in the communication rather than the thumb at ourselves to be able to see where we can create a shift. So this really is an opportunity or, or um, a push to try to help parents point the thumb first look at themselves and begin to alter what they really have the opportunity to change, which is themselves. Many parents struggle with their children's behavioral problems. And in your book, you write that a child's displayed behavior is often not the real problem and that the real problem is what underlies the behavior or what children are unable to say directly. Can you explain this further? Um, sure. I often will see in the children that come through my door, um, the parents will identify, you know, my child is, um, my child uh, throws things when he's angry. So that would be the, the, the behavior problem as an example. Um, obviously, what underlies that action is that the child is angry and doesn't have um, the ability to express his or her anger in a healthy way or a more healthy way than throwing things. And oftentimes what the parents simply want us to do is address the behavior. Let's just get him to stop throwing things. And we can do that. And actually, that's not even all that hard. But then what we don't really address is the emotion that is driving that behavior. And so what will happen if we don't address the emotion that is driving that behavior is it will come out in some other way. And it may not be any more pretty than the one that we just solved. Mm -hmm. You know, another great quote in the book from one of your clients states that it's very difficult for parents to be in the moment rather than 10 steps ahead of the moment. Can you give the audience some examples of mindful moments that you can have every day with your child? Oh, absolutely. Um, it, it begins from the moment you wake up and you, you can begin to make conscious choices about what do you want to have happening? What do you want to be going around? Um, 
what do you want to be, what do you want your child to be experiencing the moment they wake up? Do you want it to be noisy? Do you want them, do you want to be you the one that walks in the room and gently wakes them up? Do you want your yelling voice to be the first, their first experience of the day? Um, So how you wake your child up or how you greet your child after they've woken up, if they're an older child and, and are able to get up on their own, it is one of the very first moments that we have an opportunity to interact with our child in a mindful way. Um, and then it goes on from there. It, it, it is how and what we put in their lunches. It is um, our communication with them while we're getting ready for the day. It is how we handle the hustle and bustle of trying to get out the door. Do we do that calmly or do we do that curtly? It is the interactions that we're having in the car. It is the things that we text them, the phone messages that we leave them. It is the notes that we may write for them when when they return home from school. Um, and then it's a lot of different things it seems like. Absolutely. At the end of the day, there are again all sorts of um, moments. Really, any time you interact with your child is an opportunity to be mindful. And when when I talked about how some parents are ten steps ahead, what's happening is they're not present in the moment. They're thinking about while they're packing lunches and communicating with their child about breakfast, they're already thinking about being at the grocery store one hour from now after I've dropped the kids off or being at work at the meeting that I need to attend after I get the kids off. So they're not actually present for breakfast. They're already at work. So that's what I really try to help parents do is pull themselves back into the moment Um, because essentially we're teaching our children to not be in the present moment either. And very often I will have parents come in and, and say to me, that's one of their pet peeves. Their children are on their telephone or texting um, their friends in the morning instead of getting ready. Oftentimes, it's, it's much because of our own behavior that we've, we've um, allowed or taught our children that that's how, how to be rather than to be present in relationship. Toward the end of your book, you list several different kinds of awareness practices. Can you say a little bit about what these are and just give an example of one that people can perhaps practice today? Absolutely. Um, you know, throughout the book, I talk about, uh, I think I think I offer three or four different awareness practices for, for each section of the book. Um, and the, the key really is to is to learn about awareness in three areas, awareness of the self, awareness of the relationship and awareness of the moment. Um, they're all very simple practices, things that you can do at any point, um, really in any location. Uh, one of the, one of the favorites of mine that I have is the mindful listening practice. Um, and sometimes I'll actually utilize the mindful listening practice to try to help parents really listen to their child's voice. In the book, the mindful listening practice is focused on trying to help the parent listen to their own breath, um, which is also extremely helpful. Um, and the practice takes less than 
two minutes. And really what it does is allows the parent to understand that they have the capacity to put their focus, to put their mind, to put their thoughts on any place that they want it to be. They don't have to be thinking about the to-do list that they need to finish today. They don't have to be thinking about the meeting that they need to attend later. They don't have to be thinking about the activity that they need to coordinate getting their children to. They can be thinking about anything that they choose. So this kind of practice and really all of the practices allow help a parent understand that that they have control and a choice as to where they want their mind to be. Um, mindfully, mindfully listening to one's own breath or mindfully listening to one's child's voice, not, not to hear what the content is, but just to simply really hear it at a different level, a deeper level, a, a more conscious level. This is what my child sounds like. Um, can have a very powerful effect on kids, uh, on, on parents, and really can bolster parents' willingness and, and desire to, to become more connected and to do more connecting um, activities with their child. All right. Thank you, Raven. I think we've already probably taken up a lot of your time, and those are all the questions I have for you. Why don't you tell the audience a little bit about what you're working on now? What I'm working on now? Um, mm-hmm. You know, now I'm pulling together some um, online classes that I'd like to to um, offer to parents who are utilizing the book and if, or if they're choosing not to utilize the book really would help um, emphasize and, and solidify some of the skills that the parents are, are um I think really needing to be able to have a present connected interaction with their child throughout the day. Um, I'm also uh, starting my blog up again, which will be um, beginning at the end of this month uh, to try to keep a better flow of communication with parents. Parents will often come to me with very specific problems and, and they sometimes will struggle with how to, okay, how do I implement these strategies in with these very specific issues or problems that I have. So the, the blog is going to be set up in such a way that um, it's really going to be much more practical um, in problem solving. And then also hopefully offer an, a, an opportunity for parents to create some dialogue back and forth with one another about how things are going. Um, so those are two, two key um, projects that I'm working on right now. Um, in addition to trying to do some more consulting in schools with how to teach our kids to be what I call better relators. Um, I, I think we overemphasize the, that we need our children to behave better. And if we can just shift our thinking slightly and consider that what we really are trying to do is help them relate better and to provide them with a set of relationship skills that is going to help them be extremely effective, both with within the parent-child relationship and beyond, um, that that's really a key to helping our children um, become uh, more uh, grounded and um, confident in terms of their sense of self. I think you've, you've written before uh, that 
good behavior will follow once your child learns how to be a better relator. Yeah, absolutely. The, the behavior is just a natural outcome of having these relationship skills on board and, and being able to practice them time and time again as they interact with parents, peers, teachers, um, and even in some ways with themselves. Okay. Well, thank you so much. I, I think the uh, audience is going to take a lot from this interview. Wonderful. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. You're welcome. You've been listening to an interview with Raylynn Maloney about her new book, Waking Up, A Parent's Guide to Mindful Awareness and Connection. I'm Vita Hamafar, the host of New Books in Psychology. Thanks for listening.